Hi everyone, I'm Alex Eddington, and welcome to another episode of Fresh Sounds Open Ears. This is the second episode, and as you might have noticed already, we have added two words to the title of the podcast. Last week we were called Fresh Sounds, then I realized there's a bit of competition for that name in the podcast universe. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we wanted to stand out a little bit more when we come into the podcast apps. So I asked some of our fans for feedback, and uh, the suggestion that came back a few times was Fresh Sounds Open Ears, and there's a comma in there too. I've also updated the logo and uh, made it a little bit punchier, so you might have noticed that in your podcast aggregator. Uh, I wonder if this means that next time in two weeks, uh, we might have six words in the title, maybe eight after that, or maybe it's exponential, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Fresh sounds, open ears, it's unique, sounds good to me, and seems to express what we're all about. And what we are all about is that this is a podcast where a composer, that's me, interviews other composers, currently Canadian ones, uh, specifically about their work with young and amateur musicians, writing for them, writing with them, etc. Because that's something I do, and that's something I'm interested in talking to other composers about. So last week, uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, go back and check out episode one with Laura Hawley. In that episode, uh, I talked to Laura about her work as a choral composer, about life in Edmonton, uh, about uh, how we survive as musicians and especially as choirs during these COVID times. Um, I also, in the first episode, talk a little bit more about our sponsor, who is the ACNMP, the Alliance for Canadian New Music Projects. So uh, not that that's a must-listen before this one, but uh, you might as well go back and uh, see what we started with. Uh, this week, for our second episode, um, I sat down for a conversation with Dean Burry, who currently lives in Kingston. He's from Newfoundland originally, and he has lived in various parts of Canada. Um, he is primarily a composer of opera for children. And I'm going to read a little bit from his bio right now. Composer and librettist Dean Burry is a storyteller. In addition to his extensive work in the opera and concert music fields, he has become one of the world's leading composers of children's opera, his works receiving performances across Canada, the United States, Europe, China, and Brazil. At over 600 performances, his opera The Brothers Grimm is one of the most produced operas of the 21st century, and his operatic adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit recently received its European premiere to sold-out houses in Slovenia. Following a tenure as artistic director of the Canadian Children's Opera Company, Burry became assistant professor at the Dan School of Drama and Music at Queen's University and artistic director of the school's Watershed Festival, Reimagining Music Theatre. So I sat down for a really interesting conversation with Dean Burry a little while back, and we talked about all sorts of things, uh, including, and I'm looking through uh, the marker notes I put in my uh, software here, we talked about Among Us, the uh, game that uh, the young people are playing. We talked about uh, rock climbing a little bit. We talked about clowning, uh, the art versus the craft of composition, uh, the puppet plays he used to put on as a child, uh, drama education versus music education, uh, what makes art, can a kid make art, um, how we can clean our ears, uh, how silent music by John Cage actually is music, and uh, all sorts of projects that Dean Burry is working on. So without further ado, let's listen to that interview. Hey 
Is this the first podcast you've been on, or have you been on some before? I've I've done some podcasts, but not kind of the uh, the remote, you know, the uh, the YouTube or the uh, the internet blue t- yeti all technology kind of thing. <laughs> we've been like at Queens, we've been online since the fall, uh, and really uh, since the pandemic hit, obviously. Uh, so th- this summer we were deluged with you know uh, with um, uh, so much technology and so many different programs. Is it WeView or Camtasia or uh, Zoom or Teams or, you know, so many different things. So we've had to learn so much technology in such a short amount of time. So um, I, one of the first podcasts I've done in the, in, the first, in the last little while and certainly in this format, but uh, gosh, I've certainly been on screens and in front of a microphone a lot. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've had to learn about Squadcast which is this way of recording in our own homes and making it sound like we're there together, which is the, right. the goal. Well, and, and it's not all t- a chore either as well, too. The uh, Kingston Symphony Orchestra has been doing a lot of Discord uh, mm. uh, streams of Among Us and uh, Fall Guys we're going to have do come up. So uh, actually doing some online gaming streaming as well, which is kind of what? fun. Oh, yeah. so you're playing Among Us, just yeah. like uh, AOC in the States. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. I, I've tried a couple times. I found, though, that because I wasn't playing with friends, I was playing with strangers like people would realize they weren't the imposter and they would just leave the game. So like everyone wants to be the imposter. It's uh, yeah, no, exactly. And it's, it's tapping into certain skills, like the, the duplicitous quality, you've got to lie, you know, mm. and, and lie convincingly to do that. And for the longest time, I had a hard time with that when I forgot that I had a lot of acting experience in my background as well. So, you know, you can then start turning that on. Yeah, no, I, I should play more among us. I find I, I join games and then don't have time unless it's chess. I play too much chess. Apps. Yeah, well, again, and again, it's like finding ways to connect with people remotely. Yeah, like that's what, the thing. what we tend to do. I mean, like mostly when people play among us, they get on there and you just type in your answers to people you don't know. But we've gotten into the habit of kind of zooming in or discording in with friends mm. uh, and then we'll sit around for the night and it feels like a night of gaming you know and you're actually yeah. you know connecting with people yeah i'd like to and, more of that and, and murdering them and murdering them <laughs> i have started playing dungeons and dragons during the pandemic and uh i was a big dungeons and dragons player uh for, for many years in fact i would attribute a lot of my my um the reason i became a writer was uh was dungeons and dragons writing those modules back then and and Mm -hmm. a lot of interest in history as well i found something called four against darkness which is a solo dungeons and dragons version that you can download and so i now you can play it with a group so my i've been playing it with my daughter which is fun but again it's just like chucking some dice and uh it's been been occupying some time for sure that's great yeah i found it's it's funny what this pandemic has brought up for me it's been D D. Also, Marvel comics, like I'm doing a full-scale catch-up on Marvel, uh, both the MCU and comics, which I never grew up reading. Look at that. What do you What do you have there? This was my. This is one of my Christmas presents. This is Amazing Spider-Man number 29, second appearance of the Scorpion. So, oh, uh... <laughs> wow. Yeah, my, my son, who's now five, is, is actually also my two-year-old son. They're interested in uh, comic villains, and especially the villains from the Spider-Man series. Uh, but we got a book of five-minute Marvel stories meant for young kids. And I'm reading it. I'm like, I don't know who any of these characters are. So I started watching all the Marvel movies in timeline order, uh, which Disney Plus has set up for you, and uh, reading select characters. Um, yeah, Pretty it's... much Sp- <laughs> Spider-Man and Star Wars are my two, uh, you know, my two uh, guilty pleasures. Nice. Well, uh, why don't we talk about some music? And why don't I say who you are? So... Uh, <laughs> So I'm sitting down uh, remotely today with Dean Burry, who is a Canadian composer and, um, from what I can see, primarily known at the forefront for your work in opera, 
uh, for children. Is this opera that's meant to be performed by children or for children or both? It's it's been both for sure. I mean, I I've I've had opportunities in both uh, formats. If you're talking about operas that are uh, written for children to perform, you'd be looking at things like uh, the commissions that I wrote for the Canadian Children's Opera Company, things like The Hobbit or The Secret World of Og. Um, also for Viva Youth Singers as well, too. A piece called The Sword in the Schoolyard. Um, but then, of course, I worked for the Canadian Opera Company for 17 years in the education department. Oh, wow. And, and did so many create what we call create an opera programs where I went into mm -hmm. schools over the course of six or eight weeks and we, we wrote little operas from scratch. Um, so uh, so that was, you know, that was certainly the, the process of not just writing for young people, but writing with young people. Mm -hmm. But then I, I would say like the, the other stream of that and, and one of the pieces probably that's gone the furthest in my canon uh, is writing operas for adults to perform for young people. So this would have been like the Brothers Grimm or um, the Scorpion Sting for the Canadian Opera Company. And, and those are pieces which kind of have traveled fairly, fairly far and wide. Right. Mm -hmm. So one way or another, absolutely. I've written things that are not for or by children, but uh, it's certainly been a big part of my career. Absolutely. Yeah. Like what proportion of your output has been um, children's opera? Uh, probably. It's getting a little less now, I'd say, because, again, you know, as you as you start working, like I always used to say, oh, well, 90 percent of my output is opera. And I mean, often that's a case as well. Like any time a, a time a chamber music group comes to me and says, can we perform some of your music? I'm like, yeah, well, I don't have that much chamber music because <laughs> I mean, like for me, in when I graduated from high school, um, the question was, am I going to go to theater school and become an actor and a playwright? Or am I going to go to music school and become a musician? Those were the two things that I was had very much been into for the decade leading up to that point. Mm -hmm. um, and I ended up going to Mount Allison University uh, to study saxophone. But I realized that by writing music, which is something that I had done for a long time as well. Um, but not only that, but, but focusing on like musical theater and opera and those type things got me into both of those worlds. I could be in the theater world. I could be in the music world. And that's kind of where, you know, where that brought me along as well. Um so, uh, you know, and, and just the kind of the idea of writing for children just kind of came naturally out of that. I, I taught saxophone when I was in high school, so I'd always been teaching a lot. When I was at Mount Allison, I created a, a composition camp in the summer. I remember having five-year-olds there as well. So um, the idea of, you know, working with children just seemed like a logical one. And, and I suppose what happened is, like, I, when I finished my master's at U of T in composition, um, I got a job. I mean, I was working in a dive coffee shop uh, on Young Street uncommon grinds i think it was called oh okay um, <laughs> and um and i managed to get a job in the box office of the canadian opera company so it was like a nine-month contract but in that time i kind of started getting to know people in the rest of the building started doing some of the workshops for them for some of the school groups that were coming in got this job uh, uh teaching the after school opera program which was a real big key for me we can even talk a, bit, a little bit more about that later um <laughs> sure. but at the at the same time I had I had met Richard Bradshaw, who was then the general director of the of the COC in the elevator and said to him, uh, look, you probably don't know me. I work in the box office, but I'm a composer and I'm really interested in opera. And I had written a small opera for my thesis at U of T. And he looked at it. He was really positive about it, really liked it. And then all those things came together uh, about six months later when they needed a new commission for their school tour. Uh, uh, and that was the Brothers Grimm. And, and that, I feel like, was hmm. the start of start of it for me. And from what I've seen in your bio, the Brothers Grimm has been performed what six hundred times? It's been performed over six hundred <laughs> times. I mean, it's listen. I always like you. I know that you support kind of having composers send in sending in their materials for young people to play and those kind of things. 
but I would also encourage composers to consider writing pieces for young people uh, or, or to be performed for young people. Because, for mm -hmm. example, when you take a large opera company and they do a commission of a big opera, which is a great accomplishment for sure. It's a lot of um, for an opera company to kind of um, put money down for a big scale opera is a real endorsement. Yep. However, most opera companies do these school tours as well, right? And yes. so, you know, a piece like The Brothers Grimm is 45 minutes for five singers and piano, um, packs into the back of a van and drives out to a school. Um, so whereas an opera company might do five or six, if you're lucky, performances of a big main stage opera, every time an opera company does The Brothers Grimm, they usually do like 30 to 40 performances, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it really, you know, gets out there. I think, you know, over 250,000 kids have seen the Brothers Grimm, right? Yeah. It, it, it was translated into Portuguese and it toured in Brazil and it's been in Wales and it's, you know, it's been through the States and Canada as well. And that feels really great. I mean, you, I, I know. And again, over the course of my career, I'm older now and I've got a different sense of who I am as a composer. But I remember in the early stages that piece was like, oh, you're just a children's opera composer. Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of something that's that's looked down upon. Right. But really, when I think about my own career, I think about, you know, what what impact have I had? Like sometimes we all do this as composers. Right. We all say, <laughs> well, we all say, why are we doing this and what impact? That, you know, that that uh, atonal string quartet that I just wrote that's sitting on the shelf, how is that contributing to the world? You know, we, we ask ourselves these questions, right? And so, you know, when I, I can remember sitting at the back of those gyms with 300 kids, utterly wrapped, watching an mm. opera with as much engagement as they would their iPhones. And I thought, that feels like a good impact. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And it, now you mentioned that it, it tours with uh, the singers and piano, but the excerpt you sent me is an orchestral version it, of it. So it, when it, did you it, make that one? Yeah, no, it, funnily enough, I made that one before the uh, the uh, the piece even even premiered. Like it was it was originally commissioned uh, as a piece for piano and uh, and the singers um, again to make it sure. God. And I, one thing I want to point out about that as well, too, is oftentimes as, as composers or, or when we look at that, you'd say, oh, it's just a broken down opera. It's just a small opera with just piano, just piano, mm. just five singers kind of thing. It was really important to me to, to be able to tell people that we're seeing the Brothers Grimm, young people, that this opera was written like this. You are seeing the full art form. This is not an opera that was supposed to be written for orchestra. And this is just the small, which kids so often see. Mm -hmm. If you take the Magic Flute out to a school tour, or if you take um, Harmon out to a school tour or something like that, they're not seeing the full art form. They're seeing a shortened reduced version of the opera and i wanted people exactly. to, i wanted people to know that that this what they were seeing was the way that this was intended um uh before that happened one of the excerpts was picked up for the i think it's the world summit on arts and culture in ottawa in 2000 and uh wayne strongman and tapestry kind of spearheaded a, a showcase of canadian pieces i remember that that had a a, a sample from philomena john astasio's philomena oh, yeah. just, just piano before that piece ever premiered as well uh, but they had a they had a small orchestra, so I orchestrated the piece. So it like it the piece has existed in various forms with some small orchestrations now and then. But the core of the artwork is five singers and a piano. Right, and that makes it tourable, and that makes it aff affordable to to put on. And, and I think that's a really good lesson for especially composers starting out in opera. Uh, is if you make something uh, that is on a smaller scale, it's going to have more impact. Well, and you, I mean, you talk about impact as well. Like you could bring um, a school group down to see La Boheme or yes. let's not even say a traditional opera. Let's say it's a 
let's say it's a new opera that was written for young people in a language they can understand and, you know, written accessibly and uh, bring them down to the opera house. Um, and they, you know, they might have a wonderful experience, but they could have just as much of an emotional connection and an emotional experience with a, an intimate, um, authentically done opera on their gym floor, you know, Absolutely. and that, that, that's the face that I, that, you know, what, what I found as well too. So it's like, it's not dismissing, you know, this obviously, and again, we'll probably get into talking about this very much because if we're talking about, you know, music for young people, the idea of dismissing, um, music for young people is not as valid. Or, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, it's all education. It's not the art and that's garbage, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it is, it is all art and young people are people. They're not, <laughs> absolutely. they're and not, they, Ill, they're not ill-formed people or yet to be formed people. They are people. And they are potentially better prepared for that performance than your average audience is for any other concert or, or performance because they've been, uh, often they're these study guides, right? That they are, their teachers are preparing them for or debriefing afterward. They're, they're better prepared in a couple of ways. Exactly what you just said. They're also better prepared because they don't have the weight of cynicism ah. that, that falls on us as we grow up <laughs> yes. and, and suddenly think that the word opera means I can't like it, you know, because of everything I've ever right. seen on television or anything that. Now, listen, I, I would go in and I would do chats with kindergarten students who still, when I said the word opera, would think of something very specific. Yes. That fat lady with the Viking horns breaking yep. glass. How many times did I refer to that stereotype? However, the the um, the they're far less. They have far less baggage at that point sure. and are much more willing to take things in, which, again, I, I think a root of any conversation of me talking about, um, you know, writing for young people or working with young people. In fact, I, I think that as adults, we need to carry that quality forward. Mm -hmm. I, I think that adults need to write more like children than children need to write more like adults in a sense, you know? One thing that I've uh, been trying to do more as a composer is is to have, like, the audience know why they're there, like, what what it is that the music is and is trying to get across. I find with, with drama, that's something that directors have talked about a lot in my experience. It's like, in the first five minutes, the audience wants to know, like, what what is this going to be? Even if we don't know where it's going, right. what is it we're here for? Um, and I do find that sometimes concert music doesn't pass that what's the point test for well, me. We have a we have a real advantage in the theatrical world, right? Yeah. Because um, no matter what it is, even if, if it's the most complicated piece of modern music, if there's something that the audience can grab onto or Absolutely. get, yeah. if, if it is completely foreign, like I always, uh, the, the analogy I always use, like when writing my own music as well, is if, if you go into a rock climbing gym, in the days before when we were able to go into rock climbing gyms um, and there was a sheer wall of concrete with no handholds. Nobody would get to the top. Nobody would feel satisfied. No. Right. It would be miserable. Also, though, if you go to a rock climbing gym and there's an escalator going to the top of the wall. Yeah. Everybody will get it. Everybody will get to the top. But is there any satisfaction in that? Is there anything? Do you learn mm -hmm. anything? Right. Mm -hmm. So really with my music and, you know, I think with good, good music is that you put enough handholds there for people to be able to get to the top, but make it a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. Make it a struggle so there's something to kind of learn on the way, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so, but but again, when you're when you're doing something that's dramatic, and I always come back to, I remember seeing the production of Bluebeard's Castle and Ervartum. Oh, that's a beautiful um, production at, at the COC, right? Yeah. Um, and I always marveled at the fact that you know the coc and this was a this was a couple this is 20 years ago now I, I can't remember the last time they did it but it's certainly been 15 years anyways mm -hmm. um you know the coc 
it's changing, but still has a fairly traditional audience. They want Posca, they want Carmen. And like I say, it is changing. And I think the COC is doing a good job of changing it, mm-hmm. but certainly at that time. So to look at those two incredibly challenging 20th century operas, early 20th century operas, um, becoming the bread and butter, they, they, they sold out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even though the music is so challenging, but what was represented on stage, the acting, the sets, the lighting, all of those yep. things, made the story incredibly clear right so everybody in the audience could you know what's going on the music reflects the madness really well um and but but people were what much more willing to accept that very sophisticated complicated modern music because they felt comfortable and that there was something that they relate to they understand that this is i mean comfortable is maybe not the word to describe either one of those operas but it's a frame of reference i know what a horror movie looks like right and a Mm. horror movie looks like a dark dark house with lights in the back and and this to me looks like a horror movie and the story is a horror so uh you know i i feel like um in the dramatic world we have the advantage of story and and visuals as well too that help you um get over the hump of the sophistication of the modern music yes i giving people something to hang on to like a like a narrative or a story makes a big difference i find too with you know when i've written concert music i i find i i can't write a piece of music that doesn't have uh, some reference outside of the music itself. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's uh, I have a lot of pieces with quotations of other tunes, for instance. Do, do you do you always have something extra musical, whether it's the text or some other idea, or do you ever write like pure music? I, well, this is yeah. So I was I'm going to ask you a question first as well too, because okay. you mentioned you mentioned you do that referential kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel guilty about it? Uh, I have been I have I have been known to feel a little bit guilty about it, but I, I seem to have owned it now because I just put out an album, including some pieces that include very much that so. there was a yeah, I was I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about, you know, the things that we were going to say and everything. And there has definitely been a uh, a school of thought that is very much against the idea of programmatic music. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I think certainly in the 20th century, com- there were certainly composers that that this idea of music being more pure and a reaction against the romantics and those kind of things as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I remember in my early years of my university kind of education, hearing that kind of same idea, this idea of writing pure music um, to me, um, I, I am definitely a composer that comes from my heart first and mm-hmm. my brain second. Mm-hmm. Uh, my emotions kind of lead everything in a sense. So no matter if it's a, if, even if it's a piece of very sophisticated mathematical, um, mathematically derived music um to me music still uh, has some sort of an emotional connection or it feels a little empty to me i'll go i'll go so far as to say that it's not that it's not interesting but it you know is it are our mathematical equations interesting they certainly can be interesting as well um but uh, but for me as a composer the music really needs to come from my heart sure through my through my brain for sure um but uh so i would say that very rarely very even i remember even when i was at U of T doing my um my uh my phd which was not that long ago actually i went back after being away for a long time um i, I was trying to write something which is very different from me serialist music very serialist piano music mm. derived on kind of formulas but i uh when i thought about those for formula an idea came about i remember being at the science museum in montreal about 15 years ago and seeing a seeing a um, exhibit on the human genome uh, and I remember seeing all the letters, all the CJ, CGT, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. I thought, oh, that looks like a that looks like a row, right, or some sort of a sure. serialist row, right? So, you know, what I did was instead of just doing a pure serialist math, mathematical piece, 
I took the the genetic structures of hereditary diseases like par- <laughs> Parkinson's sure. and that kind of thing, and I used each of those to try to write a piece which was both serialist but also reflective of those diseases. So yeah. I, I can't I can't do it. But again, I'm a storyteller. Like right. people, you know, people if people ask me what I am first and foremost, honestly, before I would even say composer, I'm a storyteller and composition but i mean i'm a librettist as well and a lyricist like i that's been a part of my professional practice as well um but i tell stories right so mm. even uh, so the, the answer is I've, i i don't think i have any examples of <laughs> Every, everything is connected with something yeah i can relate to that i you know, i've written a couple serial pieces but it was it was just a technique to get an emotional idea across right and often the rose had more than 12 tones it would repeat some right it's it's just more like the sounds i want to hear but so did alban berg right the berg violin concerto like that's that 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 rose just a way of organizing some some yeah. triadic ideas right yeah and, and again and it's not to it's not to diss mathematical music or no, people that write pure not music at all. that's i mean the great thing is that there's a lot there needs to be a lot of room Traditionally, yep. there, there traditionally there hasn't been room in the new music scene. It has been very boxed in, mm-hmm. uh, but um, but there there is room for all sorts of different types of composition. Absolutely, right? and people compose for very different reasons. Um, I think it's one of the more diverse art forms in terms of why people get into it and how they do it, and the process is has to become your own. Um, I used to be a little more intellectual. I think I went more heart based in my early thirties. I blame it on my training in theatrical clown which is all about emotion then intention then action uh-huh, right uh-huh. so starting from that that intuition that you know and it that was me that was my path um we are going to stick a pin in the idea of of these things and i because i want to delve deeper into composing with students and where the storytelling comes in there but first i've got a little a few rapid fire questions for you <laughs> all right <laughs> just shoot. to kind of see your get a little bigger sense of your background so can you describe your music in three words three pithy words uh three pithy words okay you might have to edit the silence out here while i'll come up with it um i would say uh quirky i'll use the word quirky okay um some, and and in you now I've got to see I've got to justify a little bit as well. Too. I'll use, I'll, but I won't take too long. I won't take too long. Okay, fair enough. I, I've got to use the word quirky because it's it's kind of it's I need a word that incorporates not too serious but serious at the same time. Sure. Um, because I, that's I mean I'm from Newfoundland as well too. So mm-hmm. even the, even the biggest tragedies you can't take them too seriously, right? So it's um, so I'll say quirky. Um, I'll. I'll sincere i'm gonna say the word again that's not a very sexy word i know sincere i'm gonna use the word sincere because it's something that i try to do with um everything that i'm doing as well so like whether it is comedy or tragedy sure authentic authentic i think i'll start i'll try to think of a better word now for the third one so quirky sincere well and and i think you know what you're saying authentic is also a good sort of substitute for sincere if you want to sort of put those two words together so, but okay. what's so what a third? I've got, what's your, I've got the third, what's one. Your third one. Okay, I got I got to use eclectic for that one as well. Oh, okay, uh, because again, I and I was going to make the point about you know I really feel that good music is good music, 
Um, I played in a Newfoundland band for 20 years, three chord sea shanties kind of thing, right? Oh yeah, and and those I are can, those are hot again on TikTok. Yeah, oh, they they are absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I uh, and I and I, I love that you know just as much. It feeds my my uh, composition just as much as anything else as well. Too. Sure. So I don't fear eclecticism. Like you know, there's a lot of good music out there, and I don't feel like I need to limit myself to just one one sort of thing. No, we live in a post post postmodern era. So why the heck not? Just you know, uh, access the music you need to like it's, it's funny to pretend that that pure music can even exist right now because uh music uh surrounds us to the point of being inevitable well now, and if, and we, if we go back to that term art reflects life mm-hmm. um, i i'm a big believer in that term i think that's a fantastic term and if it if if art is reflecting anything then it's connected to something yeah and right now it can reflect the fact that we listen to everything and anything we want to and and also every movie i see no matter how original it seems, is is riffing on something these yeah. days, right? Like, well, and it's it's one of the beautiful things about being human, right? Yeah. We are connected in so many ways that we yeah. don't even realize sometimes. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, okay. So that's our first rapid fire. Uh, so what was your first instrument that you ever learned? Uh, I would say it was the uh, definitely the piano, like okay. grade you know grade one or kindergarten. Grade one, my mom put me in piano lessons with oh, yeah. the with Ken, the church organist. Oh yeah, how'd that uh, go? I, uh, I mean, I, I, I think I was, I, I was tapped into my creative creativity at that point. So I did enjoy sitting down at the piano, but piano lessons at that, the rigidity at that point. Mm. I distinctly remember I had this vinyl uh, sheet music uh, case uh, that was an excellent slide. And between my school and where I took piano lessons, there was a big hill. So during the summer, I would, or during the winter, during the winter, I would spend a number of times sliding down on my music books. Oh dear! Um, so I did, I did lessons with, you know, piano lessons with Kent till I was about in grade six, and then I was just ready to give it up. He was, he had moved on or whatever, and yeah. uh, I was ready to give up the piano. But my mom put me uh, in with a guy named Don Bolin, who was a, a rocker. He was okay. a pop musician. Had this, you know, the DX7 and the setup and, and that kind of thing. And uh, he noticed in my little yellow dictation book some scribblings in the pages with the staff, some writing, right? Uh, and all of the Royal Conservatory books and the and the exams and everything got pushed to the side for a little while. Uh, and we focused on writing, you know, and, and we recorded sure. some stuff using his four-track studio. Amazing. And, um, and 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 so then I fell in love with writing, and then I kind of fell back in love with the with classical music again through that as well. Through that. But so uh, how old were you when you started this? Grade six. So grade that was ten. I guess it was about ten or eleven. I okay. Think. Yeah. So uh, is that when you first started creating your own music? I had done a few things before that, and I had like in grade four, I used to write puppet plays that I would bring into my school. And Ooh. the the Friday, the end of every oh, I've got a one of my old puppets is uh, just sitting up there on the on the on the shelf. Oh, boy. Um, I, but I guess we're in a podcast here, so people can't see. You can that describe cute it to us. <laughs> it was a it looked looks a little bit like Snoopy, but it was my sister's stuffed animal that my mother. Um, through some surgery transformed into a puppet <laughs> oh <laughs> dear so i i had been doing a lot of writing coming up to that but yeah i would say grade six was when you know i got into i discovered billy joel around that same point as well oh yeah who, of a, the, one of the more composerly songwriters yeah, in my who was a, a huge yeah. influence uh and i remember i wrote a piece called one starry night it was uh hmm. which is that which i actually did put up on youtube 
uh, you can actually hear it. Uh, I will post a link. Yeah. Uh, and um, it was like, you know, grade six, me knowing everything about love and, uh, uh, you know, with the cheesy 80 synthesizers and drum machines. But hmm. but man, oh, man, I, I walked around with my, my Walkman listening to that piece. I must have listened to it 300 times over the summer. And I think I was hooked at that point. Then music music became uh, something much more than just mm -hmm. what you did after school for a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's when I got quite serious about it. And then like through uh, junior high, which in Newfoundland was seven, eight and nine, grade seven, eight and nine. Oh, it's how it should be. I like that. I, I, I started writing, you know, piano sonatas. I have a piano sonata that I kind of copied the Beethoven sonata I was learning at that point. Mm. Um, and a lot of, um, tone poems and stuff like that. So yeah, I would say, you know, those, those were the things that, uh, when it, when it really got going. What were your high school music teachers like? My high school music teachers, ah. I, I, the high, my high school teachers, music teachers weren't necessarily the ones that fired me for the most part. I mm. mean, that fired me up for the most part. Yeah. Um, uh, we had, you know, we had a band and, and we, we, we did have some good opportunities to, to travel as well. Um, so I would say that the, uh, the, again, the people in high school that really were the big inspirations for me were my drama, my drama teachers. Right. Yeah. You know, um, certainly like I, now I, at one point I did get another piano teacher uh, and her husband was a, they were, they were fairly young. They had just moved. I grew up in Gander, Newfoundland. Oh, Wayland. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I had, uh, he was, a, he had done some composing as well and jazz. He was a jazz trumpeter, which influ you know, brought me into a whole different, uh, type of music as well. And, um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, they were certainly influences, but it was the combination, like I would say of my private teacher, but then the drama teachers as well, that kind of you know, were extremely encouraging. And uh, again, th that was the point where all these worlds were starting to come together, the Absolutely. connection between the arts, right? Yeah, and I think this is something we really have in common. I did a lot of drama in high school as well, although there wasn't a course offered, but I did I did all the extracurricular plays, either as a musician or, or on stage as an actor. Um, but the, uh, you know, music teaching was completely transformed for me when I started studying drama education when I went to teacher's college. Because uh, I had planned to just be a music teacher, but but I needed a second subject. And I, I was like, wait a second, drama education is in a lot of ways like 30 years ahead of music education uh, in terms of being process focused, yeah. uh, the way they um, they spark creativity and make students feel comfortable and lead them through it has been very thoroughly thought through. That's that's a great point to make as well. The difference between the way drama and music is taught. And I, I would even make the, the correlation between opera singers or opera students and actors. Right. Sure. So so when you go to theater school. Uh, if you think back to the song from a chorus line, every day for a week, we would have to be an ice cream, be a, like, you do all those, you <laughs> yeah, do all yeah, yeah. those really crazy games that sometimes feel so stupid and you make you feel foolish, but allowing yourself to feel foolish is a really powerful thing. Yes. To feel vulnerable and, and like, and to fail, to be able to Where, fail. Whereas opera singers and to a large extent, musicians, classical musicians as well. There's a very big rigidity about it. It's you got to play this Beethoven the way that it's supposed to be played. It's all mm -hmm. about it's not about being loose. It's not about. And if you look foolish as a musician, then it's a bad thing. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you look foolish <laughs> as an actor, it's a good thing because you're open. So absolutely. The the, yeah. the things to be learned from each of those sides is, is vast. Yeah. And we, we have to we have to learn things and unlearn things and relearn things and self-learn things. And I, I think that's true with everything. But but music. Yeah. There's this mistaken idea out there. And, and listeners of this podcast will remember me saying this last week as well with Laura Hawley as a guest. There's a mistaken idea out there that music is notes and r rhythms and writing it on a page. 
Right. And I I had that mistaken idea until only a few years ago. And now I've realized, oh, wait, music is sound, isn't it? And music is something we can make, right? And putting it on paper is great, but that's just a representation. It took me a long time to get to that point because we are so <laughs> hung up on the idea of music being like this this exact science and not a squishy, fuzzy art. Right. right. Except, well, in classical music, right? <laughs> I'm, ta- I'm really talking about my background in classical music. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> even, I, I mean, it's the rigidity. Like, you know, uh, I, and I was, like, I was thinking about this this morning as well, too, before we came on. And of course... Anything where which requires discipline, and if you're going to be a really great musician, and if you're going to be able to, and, and great is in brackets, or not in brackets, but in quotation marks, right? Sure. If you're going to be a really successful or an effective musician, it's not necessarily following somebody else's rules, but it's being able to translate your own creativity to a to a, an audience in a sense right mm-hmm. so um so again it's the, there does need to be rigidity you need to sit yourself down and practice your instrument oh yeah or sit yourself down and practice how to compose or listen to things there needs to be rigidity there yeah but um but be, you need to see beyond that to have to to an incredible openness yes. right to an incredible flexibility right? there's freedom in structure and, yes. and I find that the more I give myself structure, even just parameters on writing a composition, that really, really helps me. But part of the structure is knowing, yes, knowing how to play your instrument or like knowing what your craft is. Yes. And that, a lot of that's heuristics, too, just like as you get more experienced, you know. What yeah, works, and, and I always, you know, I, I always describe that to students as well, too, as the difference between the art of composition and the craft of composition. Right. Yeah. The art of art of composition is what, you know, has been described as being inspired or your muse or wherever that comes from those ideas that come to you like again it was it was always you know if i was waiting for the bus you know when i was living in toronto if i was waiting for the bus or something and those um those bus terminals the bus shelters are really have great acoustics so if i was working on an mm-hmm. opera oftentimes mm-hmm. i'd be sitting in those <laughs> waiting for the bus singing right um, oh i love it and it's and it's those kind of those moments where um you just let things flow through you and that's yeah. so important but it's just as important then to be able to get home Put away all the distractions, sit in front of the piano and get to the craft of composition. And also as a composer, that's the thing that gets you through. Like if you've got a commission and you've got a deadline, um, the muse is not always coming to you. You know, it's, it's no. you've got you've got to use the craft to to keep working, to get stuff done. Right. Let's segue into talking about composing with students and like uh, and also how we can encourage students to to compose themselves, how we can structure that for them because they don't have those decades of experience that we have. Um, and sometimes they've come in with that unfortunate mistaken idea that you can't compose until you can write it down on the page. And I find I have to disabuse students of that sometimes. That it's like, my, this is my philosophy now, is that uh, improvising can be composing if we then reflect on it and refine it, right? And like like work on it a bit. So I like to do group composition things. But what's what's your experience where you are, say, when you were working with a Canadian opera company with with students, how how do you create an opera with kids in an after school program? Yeah, there's a couple of things I think that you need to do as well, and you kind of just touched on one of them about misconceptions that you come in with. Um, our our world in general, our society, our civilization has um, right now is dealing with so many stereotypes and so many barriers as as in terms of diversity or race or gender or anything mm-hmm. about the way we're supposed to act right and the right. and the things that we're supposed to be and we're still suffering from centuries of teaching people that a composer is a marble bust on a piano <laughs> i know right yeah we we're getting better 
we're getting better at showing that it's beyond that but there's still this sense of a composer capital yeah. c composer is mozart or beethoven and they're almost gods or they're aliens or they're something so unfamiliar right? and th they were my sparks like without bach i don't think i'd be doing this right right but the, but then that can't be it and bach is brilliant bach yeah. is wonderful i lo love listening to bach but he was just a man yes like, he was just a human being with right? a lot of kids and apparently <laughs> a very good work ethic yes exactly but our you know the history of our you know western society or whatever has kind of elevated these people to the level of gods and yeah. how do you how do you compare to that how do you approach that right so i think one thing like you say is really getting back to the idea is frankly if a, if a two-year-old picks up a crayon and makes a mark on a piece of paper that's art yeah they're an artist right absolutely um and so that literally the, happens in my house on a daily yeah, basis yeah, exactly <laughs> doing the same thing with sound is you're a composer right mm. so it's it's really giving license to 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 young people or not just young people but anyone who is yeah for sure who is not doesn't consider the, themselves a composer that they can create art right it's not it's not only owned by quote unquote professional artists whatever that means professional yeah. you know um so i think that's that's one thing and again um and, and and encouraging people to tap into what they already know and young people what they already know my goodness like as soon as you start singing a song you know you know the idea of melody you know the idea of rhythm. You know that a major chord makes you feel sad and a minor chord makes you feel or a minor chord makes you feel sad and a major chord makes you feel happy. Like most people, they don't even realize they know all the building blocks of what composition is. Absolutely. I think we're right. we're born knowing what a major scale is practically because of the songs we we sing and listen to as children. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So that's I mean that's a, that's a big thing. Another big thing again and we're getting philosophical here as well too, but uh the problem is, like, when I think back of that times of me standing in that bus shelter when I did some of my best work, this was like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I didn't have an iPod. I didn't have an iPhone. Mm. I wasn't listening to music. I had a book in my backpack that I could pull out now and then. But there was space. There was silence. There was time to think. Right. Mm. And I think all of us, including I, I wonder myself if I'm not missing the opportunity to be writing something great, because if I've got 10 seconds in a line at Shoppers Drug Mart that I have to wait for the line, I pull the phone out. Oh, check yeah. Things, right. Or or longer. <laughs> so we've we've yeah. eliminated so much silence. And so it's not, and it's, so it, you know, it's not just listening outside, but it's listening to your own thoughts as well. Right? So how do you communicate that when you work with kids, um, especially now that I know this is like a people say this all the time, but the, the kids are very much they, they take the phones for granted. Right. They take that filling of time and space for granted and it's i think it's harder for them to be bored now and all that so how do you particularly with kids kids today how do you how do you break in and help them find the space to listen for themselves and trust their instincts yeah well i mean ultimately you need to try to find a way to make them want to do it as well right yes of course um, and, yeah. and also like there's there's a very easy it's very like I teach, you know, at Queens here, I teach a, a course called Foundations of Tonal Music. And there's it's, it's part rudiments, uh, theory rudiments, but there's also musicianship and some composing and those kind of things as well, too. There's also the, you know, uh, there's, a, there's the, the tendency to like, oh, let's just do all the creative stuff and not worry about the, you know, the again, learning theory, you know, learning, mm -hmm. learning your key signatures or learning, you know, those kind of things as well. Right. Right. Um, so again, it, it, I think it, it needs to be a balance. And again, like if you're going to learn how to ride a horse, you need to learn the techniques of riding a horse. Like if you're going to, you know, um, 
even though I, th that being said i'm not just talking about tonal music i'm just you need to learn about like if you're going to play an instrument it's better to, to teach someone how to play a guitar uh, uh, rather than just throw the guitar in their hands and say make make noise with it yeah you it's know, like the, thing, right? like those older generations who were taught to swim by being thrown in the deep end i do not like that method of teaching i no, don't exactly. think it works uh, but, but, if it works, it's by chance, you know. Yeah, but but, but I, I would I would say that my experience is that being creative is satisfying. Being creative, allowing people to express what's inside them, is satisfying. No matter who you are, that's fairly universal, right? Right. Now, not everyone's going to become a composer, for sure. Uh, that's probably a good thing, uh, as far as you know, trying to have a professional career as a composer. But almost everybody wants to express what they've got inside them. Absolutely. You know? And so um, what what tools do you think like an absolute beginner, like say a, a student, a high school student composer needs? Music theory could be one. But like another thing I do is I teach elements of music and then use them to talk about things like contrast and changing the yeah. elements over time. So elements, you know, pitch, rhythm or duration, texture, timbre, uh, and then using all those to, to build form. Oh, dynamics right. as well. So shaping music over time. And then we can do that with any pure sound. It doesn't have to be notes and, you know, musical sound. What, what are some tools that you've used, um, say, with the Canadian Opera Company after school program? Where you and I imagine also they're creating text and story with well, you. Well, so again, it comes back to the conversation that we were having earlier yeah. about programmatic and and connection in a sense. Right? I, would, I thought and, it would, yeah. And and right to when we were talking about the audience that was in the you know the the people that were in the audience watching Schoenberg's very angular, very complicated music for uh, for um, Ervartung. Um, had something to grab onto and something that they could bring to it in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. So again, when you're working with in the opera field, and and there's no uh, there's no question, you could just again, there's nothing wrong with giving people a guitar and say make noise with it. There's sure. something very creative and liberating about that as well, right? But as soon as you give some sort of uh, definition to what you're working on, right? It's like um like uh, you know one of those exercises that I'm sure you've done in drama or music as well too, like creating soundscapes right mm -hmm. so you have because oftentimes when i talk to, to young people about what is music right uh and the definition of oh is this music is that not music people you know there was back in the 50s people said elvis wasn't music there's lots of people now older people oftentimes that will say rap is not music in a sense right that stuff is so much closer to beethoven than some other examples of yeah. music you know are in a sense right oh yeah um so, you know, so oftentimes like a soundscape, like where you'll say, OK, let's let what's the location uh, the shopping mall or something like that. Right. Uh, again, in the before times when we remember what shopping malls were like, um, <laughs> what are the sounds that you'd hear at a shopping mall? Like, I mean, who could recreate the sounds of talking in the distance? Who can recreate the sounds of an elevator? Who can recreate the sounds of a shopping cart or something like that? Right. And then you improvise and create these soundscapes. And then but the amazing thing is, like, I'll often take those same times and I'll I will assign individual people so let's say again like uh, this uh, rainstorm that's a kind of a common one i remember doing that when right. i was in be beavers as a boy as well, oh yeah right? yeah so some people are the wind and some people are the rain and some people are the the thunder kind of thing right you can literally stand in front of them and actually conduct them absolutely and 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 even though this is an improvised exercise and it's a soundscape when i point at the um, when I point at the rain, I know what I'm going to get. I want something that sounds like rain. In the same way, when I write a part for a clarinet, I know what I want. I want something that sounds like a clarinet, right? 
So it's um, it's uh, those are exercises which could be kind of utterly thrown out there. But the important thing is they don't go into it without some sense of I I know what it, like you know you're a four year old kid is going to say I know what a rainstorm sounds like. Absolutely, and I, can... I know how to imitate rain with my voice. Yeah, this so, is. Uh, you know? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So they're so they're coming in with something that they know. Yeah. And any any bit of familiarity. Listen, there are, there are times when we need to force all of ourselves to do things which are completely uncomfortable and completely unknown to us. It's good for growing as a human being. Mm -hmm. But if you're wanting to try, especially a young person, something that's new, if they can come into it with some tools they already have with inside them and that they know they have those tools inside them, they're going to be much more comfortable trying something new. Do you find they're more comfortable trying something new when they're on the younger side of young, like elementary students? Um, as opposed to high school students who sometimes can be a little more self-judgmental? Well, my experience certainly is that like when you got to grade five and grade six, this was when I'm thinking about the after school opera program now. Yeah. Uh, grade five, I remember, was usually my the most reliable performers. I have right? had that same experience. I love grade fives. Because the grade fives had the of the of that younger generation, that younger age group, I guess the elementary age group, they were the ones that had the most skill, the most experience, and the least amount of of the teenage um, yeah. angst and self-doubt that inevitably creeps in as a part of um, puberty. And right? they, it shifts in grade six for some of them. And then the yeah. whole, yeah, yeah. And it's not to say it always happens. Grade six, some of them kind mm. of, and if you can give them good skills, it can help them soar through that as well. Right. But then generally, yes, around grade six, people start closing off a little bit more, right? Right. And it's like, it's, like a, it's like a caterpillar going into a cocoon. So mm. it's not a bad thing. And it's, a, it's something that does need to happen. But at the same time, it's so easy to write that, you know, that age group off. Right. And, and again, I found like, um, I would go into school sometimes with the, I remember uh, one grade, it was uh, in Mississauga, it was a Catholic school and we went in, it was grade eight and they were studying. Cause another thing as well too, is oftentimes when I would go in, in there, I would make it fit the curriculum. So we, we would write an opera based on something that they were studying. Right. Sure. And they were, they were studying world war two um, and so they came up with this. And, and again, like, especially when you're working with the fives and everything, like it, they might want to do a story that involves love. But as soon as two characters have to be in love. Yeah, it could be a challenge. Right. Yeah. So so these I so saw especially with grade seven, grade eight, I would avoid avoid it, even though when I think back to myself in grade six, like, again, if you listen to one starry night, love was on my mind a lot. I didn't know anything about it, but it was on my mind a lot. Uh, and I another thing as a writer is I hate shying away from. Uh, issues of that are hard death or love or anything that young people feel those things just the they same feel way them, that, they care them they're know? able to express things about them so you can't avoid those things with young people no anyways so with that grade eight group um they came up with this story about the resistance in paris and it was kind of a romeo and juliet story mm. with one with one um one the woman who had joined the resistance and the uh the boy was from the uh, vichy regime kind of thing and it was like and i just kind of let them go and it was one of the most beautiful things that I'd ever seen. Because again, grade eight love is different. And in the same way that we could dismiss music that's written for children, a lot of people would go grade eight love. What's that? <laughs> it's just as valid. It's different than what we experience later, but it is just as valid, right? So so again, it's 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 not imposing what we think composing or we think creating should be on people. It's um, opening the field for people to have the 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 room to do whatever they want. And and finding the way to bring that creativity from within that's already there. Mm -hmm. You were talking to with the rainstorm, uh, this idea of of starting with what's familiar is a way in. 
And I think we were also talking earlier about giving audiences a way in. So this is, again, it's it's like, I love your your metaphor, the the rock climbing wall. You need to have the right amount of footholds so that it, people can do it, but that you you give them a path and they walk the path. So th- this reminds me of Armory Schaefer's exercises too, right? Some of which are just meant as like warm-ups for ear cleaning. It's amazing how many music teachers in, in schools are still reluctant to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Even though it, yeah. it just can be a quick warm-up. It it helps them sing Mendelssohn better too, you know. Like it helped. I don't know if they're singing Mendelssohn in high school. That stuff's hard. But anyway, uh, yeah, no, a, a lot of yeah, a lot of Schaefer stuff, ear cleaning as well. The composer in the classroom. There's some really great kind of things in there that I've stolen and used. Yeah, over the years because as well. you can like, build them into a whole unit. And then the idea of talking again about what is music, right? Yeah. You know, uh, and again, this might be the university class, or it might be uh, you know a young group as well too. About things like, is a bird singing music, right? Uh, mm. So it, so again, and I usually throw it out there as as what are you know people's own definition. I would suppose for my own definition edition of, of music is that it is a human created thing. That art is a construct of humanity. However, we, we we perceive the bird as music. Yes, we do for sure. But I don't think the bird is artistically creating music. They're doing it for some <laughs> other reason. So it's, yeah, it's, again, yeah. it's like trying to define for yourself what is music, right? Actually, Laura Hawley and I were talking last time about about birds as well, and like birds don't hear it the way we hear it, right? They they hear it only as their own call, and they don't hear other bird calls, whereas we hear uh, all the birds. And speaking of birds, <laughs> oh yes, what, what do we have in your mug there? I saw cardinals, goldfinches, and blue jays. Is that yeah? Okay, beautiful. Oh no, chickadees. I'm, pardon me. Yes, that's right. I'm a I'm a big nature fan, which has been a, a nice for the move. We've been out of Toronto. Uh, we moved to uh, Kings, just north of Kingston, about two and a half years ago. So mm-hmm. again, the pandemic has been lovely because I've got miles and miles of. Uh, of uh, forest to walk through up there. That is a fields, lucky right? thing. Yes, I'm yeah. I'm I'm stuck in the city, although I do live in a neighborhood with a beach, so that's nice. Yes, uh, somewhere to walk. But uh, yeah, this is this is all great. Um, I think we've covered a ton of ground here. Uh, can I ask you some some more sort of like rapid fire stuff? It's actually getting in a Schaefery direction. So like, okay, sure. what is your favorite non musical sound? If you, I mean, you're considering music as a pretty broad thing. So, like, maybe something you'd still consider music, but it's not, like, an instrument playing or whatever. Like, uh, is there a certain bird or is there a sound of nature or is there a machine noise you really like? Or, uh, You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to go cliche on this one. I mentioned earlier that I'm a Newfoundlander. So the sound of the ocean is, without a doubt, um, mm-hmm. you know, a very powerful sound for me. Water in general, and, like, we do have Lake Ontario here in Kingston, so that's really nice. Yes. But, but the sound of the ocean and... Um, I know you came to see Shauna Dithit, which was one of the operas, uh, an opera that I wrote for Tapestry Opera, and it was filled with ocean sounds. Absolutely. It was filled with, with uh, you know, the uh, the chorus creating these sounds of oceans, you mm. know. Um, it is, it is, um, but like, a, like a, a piece of music, it can be a soft murmur, it can be a crashing Wagnerian uh, opera, yeah. it can be... Uh, it can be a lovely little flute solo, okay? You know, so it's oh, so yeah. it's so varied and immense and small. Um, right around the same time I was writing Sean and did it, I also wrote a uh, a song cycle for Canadian Art Song Project called Sea Variations, mm-hmm. um, and it was the same thing. It was just filling every color from that. So so not only does it represent almost every emotion for me, it connects me to kind of who I am as a Newfoundlander as well. Absolutely, and the ocean or a lake can have every mood imaginable and i find it's often contradictory to the mood on shore uh mm-hmm. like it's weather somewhere else is affecting it i find that fascinating i want to do a project where i record lake ontario every single day uh and then i don't know what would happen then 
But <laughs> after a year, I'll have a lot of recordings like Ontario, and we'll see how different it really is every day. Uh, wh- where's the line between music and noise for you? Like, what what is no longer music? Oh, if, if it's something, if someone's intending to create music, then it's music. Um, you know, there's there can be a difference between pleasant and unpleasant. Absolutely. Uh, you know. Uh, oh, and, yes. And, I love noise. Noise music is my new thing. So, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and, and there there are types of music that I don't choose to listen to when I'm out on my run or, you know, or, you know, that I that I put on here. Uh, not because um, not because it's not music, but just because it's not my style or, uh, you know, or, or those kind of things. But. You know, again, like I've, I've, uh, my daughters are now uh, twelve and fourteen, um, and so I've had listened to a share my share of pop music over the last few years as well. Mm-hmm. Some of it, which is really great, uh, I will say. Like I'm a Taylor Swift fan. I think that she's a really interesting writer. Sure. Uh, some of some of it, which is pretty banal, you know, and 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 hard to listen to. Uh, but it's still music, and if it resonates Absolutely. with someone, you can't you can't diss that, right? Yeah. So so the difference between what is noise, I, I would just say, like if it's if someone meant it to be music, it's music. Absolutely. Um, what about yeah. if uh, I mean the ocean isn't making music? It didn't mean it to make music, but does it become music when you purposefully listen to it? Again, I think it's a matter of perception, right? Yeah. I can perceive it as the most wonderfully conceived symphony that has ever existed, um, but the ocean or the earth is not composing no it's not you know that's my my belief anyways yeah. right <laughs> yeah that's i think wc might have felt similarly uh <laughs> you can you can take that inspiration and make music from it and then that's yes. where the composing comes exactly yeah for sure i i don't know i i i, I think i was uh <laughs> affected deeply by john cage four minutes and 33 seconds just if the frame is there the sound in it can be music for you I was ju- I was just talking about that piece last night in that Foundations of Music class, right? Because oh, yeah. we we're talking about we we're talking about form. Yeah, you must. Uh, that you is know. that is the form piece because that's all it is. Exactly. There's no melody. There's no harmony. There's no rhythm. But what there is are bookends. There's a very clear form. In fact, a rather a rather traditional classical form. There are movements yep. in it. You know. And he and he <laughs> used a process to time the movements and the and the overall piece. If people aren't aren't familiar, this is John Cage's silent piece where a performer or performers sometimes an orchestra, come on stage and are silent for four minutes and 33 seconds precisely, but there are three movements. And the idea is that there's no such thing as silence. Any sound that happens in the room is the piece, and it's a piece because we have put a structure of purposeful listening around it. And, I mean, I was a, I thought it was a joke until I was in my master's degree, and it's like, no, 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 there's a whole... He was building to that for decades. Yeah, you, you get it, for sure. <laughs> and again it's, again, it's not a piece that I listen to when I'm jogging on my iPhone. No, but so let's uh, talk about what do you listen to? Um, it, and, uh, what, what's, it, what's your jogging music? Uh, what's my jog... Again, I, we, we got Apple Music recently, which was really... Uh, it was nice to have access. All of my CDs, of course, like so many people, are, um, are down in a box, right? Yep. Uh, yep. We don't even really have a CD player anymore, and I was really lamenting the fact that I wasn't able to, um, I wasn't able to to go back to my old CDs and listen to mm-hmm. things, and I and I found myself just listening to less music. You know, whatever's on, like whatever pops up on YouTube or whatever pops up on Facebook is what consumes my time. Right. But I found myself kind of less selectively sitting down to listen to music, and so what I was missing and we referred, I referred to this earlier was my old collection of Billy Joel music, right? Mm. Um, the, the, the 14 or 15 albums that he put out, like they were really pivotal in me becoming a, a composer and a songwriter as well. And a storyteller. Right. 
Um, and I hadn't, so I, I listened to them intensely up until about, you know, 22, 23, when I got out of school and kind of, you know, went out uh, a bit more as an adult. Um, and so I've been going back through the old, those old recordings and those old collections. And again, man, oh man, as a, as a 48 year old, um, my understanding of those lyrics and what was meant there is so different. And the music itself is so different than what it was when I was a 20, when I was a 22 year old in a sense. Right. Hmm. I remember there was one lyric from, I think it's from Cold Spring Harbor, one of his earlier albums. And the line is, I was dreaming of tomorrow. So I sacrificed today. And it sure was a grand waste of time. Um, and again, like I, like I know for myself, it's and I know a lot of people struggle with thinking about the moment, living in the moment and not always thinking about what it's going to be like tomorrow. And so that lyric when I was 22, eh, whatever, it just kind of went across me, hit me like a ton of bricks. Mm -hmm. So so and, and this is the same case with a lot of not just, you know, Billy Joel, but any music. When you go back and listen to it with the ears that are now 25 years more, have more 25 years more experience. It can be a rel re revelatory thing. So I would advise people, if you had something that you loved when you were younger, haven't listened to it in ages, give it a try. Go back. Absolutely. What, what, what's your, what would you say is, is if you're really in a bad mental state or emotional state and you just need to lie on the floor in the dark and listen to something, and, and what, what will restore you? What song or album or... Piece. I uh, yeah I would like to get this is when you get to ask these questions as a classical composer it's, it's a, I'd like to give like oh you know the Zanakis or the the Ligeti or you know these pieces oh, Zanakis would destroy me in that case yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 honestly my go-to once again it's, it's another cheesy answer but 80s 80s pop music nice um, that's I, high quality you know, stuff you know the the stuff that I listen to, and, and not just Billy Joel, but I'm talking like Cyndi Lauper and yeah. Bruce Springsteen and Aha and stuff like that. Um, Toto, you know, all the uh, Chicago. Sometimes the cheesier the better. Again, and, and uh, I'll bring this full full circle again to something else that we've talked about. <laughs> it's something which kind of allows me to tap into where I was when I was young. You know, yeah. when I was a young person, and as I mentioned at one point, that as adult composers. What we need to do is we need to we need to hold on to what we have as young people. The sense of wonder and creativity of, and openness is something that we all need to hold on to, not just as adults in general. But if we're going to be artists or if we're going to be creators, you, you've got to tap into that. Right. Yeah. And so I think for me and again, one of the biggest things I miss about the pandemic is coming back to Toronto and going down to one of these barcades these arcade bars where you can go in and play Pac-Man or play Space Invaders or something like that with the 80s move music. Bag. I go in those places and man, it's my happy place. And I'm right back to being that 10 year old discovering mm -hmm. classical music, discovering composing for the first time. So that's my happy place. That's wonderful. Why don't we just end? Could you tell us a little bit about this, this brand new festival, the Watershed Festival? Yeah, so um, I, as I mentioned, I've been in Kingston now for about two and a half years, and I've been uh, a professor at uh, Queen's University, the Dan School of Drama and Music. And about five years ago, the schools combined, the drama and the music schools combined, and they got a really fantastic donation from Aubrey Dan, the Aubrey Dan Foundation, uh, to put towards um, the development of the school, but also kind of the development of music theater and, and, and commissioning music theater and those kind of things. So the timing was perfect when I came here to Toronto as well, too, because I'm 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 the music theater guy. Right. Like, I mean, you know, oftentimes the bad thing is when chamber music organizations come to me and ask me and I say, oh, I don't have that much chamber music. 
when you're talking about music theater, that's what I doing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so I think the timing was great. So I, I was brought on as a professor, but also as the artist, artistic director of this festival, which has become known as the Watershed Festival, reimagining music theater. And the important point is that it is music theater. So that includes musical theater, Broadway musicals. Uh, it includes opera. Okay. It includes everything in between and everything beyond, because both of those art forms, again, they do come with a lot of baggage. You know, when we're talking about Black Lives Matter and indigenous uh, issues in, in Canada, particularly as well, um, opera and, and even more, but still musical theater as well, ha have created boxes that have excluded a lot of voices, right? So the Watershed Festival really is about bringing the people from the opera world and the musical theater world into the same room, but realizing that the, the, the walls of that room need to be broken out and a lot more diversity um, all the Absolutely. diversity, yeah. not just a lot more, but all the diversity yeah. needs to be brought in. So like we've been talking a lot over the last of the while, over this last hour, it's all about breaking boxes, you know, and mm -hmm. changing perceptions about what things are and being open to, you know, something much larger. So, yeah. So the Watershed Festival is happening May 25th to 28th. Okay. Uh, virtually, of virtually. course, this, this year. Uh, <clears throat> hopefully next year we'll be back in Kingston with the... Um, but we've commissioned a, a big uh, musical from Leslie Arden, who's one of the country's best known musical theater writers right. called the, called the Lancashire Lass, which is about the suffragette movement. Um, oh, wow. But we have a lot of kind of works uh, like we have a new work showcase. People come bringing things in from uh, across the country. Uh, Dylan Robinson is going to be talking about his fantastic and really uh, uh, pivotal book, Hungry Listening, yep, which is I about bet. indigenous issues. I'm in, reading that right now. Yep, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so and he's a Queens professor. So. You know, oh, I didn't realize. Turn, okay. Turn, turns out there's a lot of great things here in Kingston, I have to say. So Queens. I have heard. And whenever <laughs> I visit it, it's a beautiful city as well. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. So um, where can people find you on the internets? If you want a little bit more information about me, you can go to uh, www.deanbury.com. Um, I've also got a, a big project as well that I'm working on right now called Tracing Colville, which is right. a big orchestral piece that was inspired by... Um, I took a trip to Europe a couple summers ago and traveled to all the places where Alex Colville, who was a Canadian war artist in the Second World War, traveled to. So I'm in the process of right now of being of writing a big uh, orchestral piece um, based on those journeys in England and France and Holland and, and Germany. Um, so Tracing Colville, or if you go to www.tracingcolville.com, okay. you can see a bit more information about that. Um, but the Watershed Festival is at www.watershedmusictheater.com. And that's it for the second episode of Fresh Sounds Open Ears. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't yet, why don't you go back and listen to episode one, which came out two weeks before this one, when I talked to Laura Hawley, an Edmonton-based composer of choral music. Uh, and then in two weeks' time from this one, for episode three, I'm going to be talking to Katerina Gimmon, who is from Vancouver. She is a younger generation choral composer with a very creative approach to working with choirs of both young people and adults. In the meantime, take a look for Fresh Sounds Open Ears in your favorite podcast app. Uh, it's taking a little bit of time to show up. Now I understand why podcasts have trailers. It's so that they can make sure they're in all the apps before the first episode drops. Oh well, two weeks on, we're still not in uh, all the apps. We're in one, it's called Podcast Addict. Of course, you can also find us on anchor.fm, which is the website hosting our podcast. Um, but if you uh, take a look through Spotify or Google Podcasts 
or Apple Podcasts or CastBox or whatever your favorite way of aggregating podcasts is, uh, when you see us pop up there, please subscribe, uh, review, give us a rating. Uh, that would be fantastic. I'd also love to hear from you. Uh, we have a Facebook page called Fresh Sounds Open Ears Podcast, and uh, I post uh, updates about uh, upcoming episodes and interviews. And uh, you can also post what you think, and that kind of interaction would be fantastic. Um, this is a podcast of conversations, and I'd like to extend that conversation outward to you all. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really appreciate it, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to get uh, these composers heard beyond their current spheres. Speaking of which, I have put a ton of links in the show notes, uh, and I will every week. So everything that Dean Burry talked about today will be in the show notes, uh, including the Watershed Festival he mentioned at the end and uh, the various works that we played. Um, just before we hear some of his music to go out, I'm just going to mention again that this podcast is presented by the ACNMP. That's the Alliance for Canadian New Music Projects. I talk a little bit more about them in episode one, if you want to go back. Uh, but I'm just going to say uh, the ACNMP is a uh, Canadian nonprofit organization uh, devoted to creating a, a real bridge between Canadian composers and particularly young musicians. So among the things that the ACNMP does is to have a syllabus of Canadian compositions uh, that are graded according to difficulty, uh, to organize festivals called Contemporary Showcase, where young musicians play Canadian music for uh, adjudication, uh, and also commissioning of new works and many other uh, great things. So if you are a composer or if you are a music teacher, this is a great organization to bridge the gap between you. Yes, I am on their board of directors, uh, and that's how this all got started. But of course, this podcast has gone um, in its own direction. Uh, but I'm very pleased for the spark of inspiration that the ACNMP provided. And you can find out more about them at acnmp.ca. I'm also going to be appearing as a guest soon on another podcast called New Musings on New Music uh, with hosts Norman Adams and Barbara Pritchard. Uh, they interview composers as well. So I'm going to talk about this podcast and uh, also my own work as a composer. My name, of course, is Alex Eddington. If you want to find out more about me and my work, you can check out alexeddington.com. We are going to play out with some music by Dean Burry. Uh, this is his most performed piece, the opera The Brothers Grimm, uh, which I think when it toured often was played with piano, as he mentioned. But this is the orchestral uh, version that he wrote uh, for this aria, at least, right in the very beginning of the piece. This is back from 2001. It's called Above the World from the opera The Brothers Grimm. And uh, the performers singing here are Stuart Howe, tenor, and Rebecca Haas, mezzo-soprano. Please enjoy. Every week I walk these woods and every week that old witch returns and cries to the tower the name of Rapunzel. I wonder who lives in that Fishing and hunting and 